We're in John chapter 18. And uh, last week we talked about Judas Iscariot. Um, one of the things that occurs when you're reading John, um, John does, does he, he wrote his gospel, and I, and I could talk about John's style forever, but John writes his, his, his gospel in a series of interconnected um, circles or rings. And so he will present an idea or a thought or a concept and then just kind of leave it there. And you go, okay, or, you know, and then you cycle around through the story and then suddenly that will come up again. And then further down the road, it'll come up again. And he, he creates these concentric rings of, uh, or not concentric rings, it's interlocked rings of narrative. And it is almost as if John, um, and of course this is conjecture, but it, it is almost as if John laid out um, the events of the gospel in parallel and, and made sure that things connected in a unique way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have their own style of doing things. They report events pretty much together. That's why they're called the synoptics, to see together. Um, that's what that word means. And so they see things pretty much the same way. When John comes to situations, particularly situations that appear in the other three Gospels, and, and there's a lot of John's Gospel that isn't in the other three, but when he comes to a situation that is so important that he is going to present it, he often presents it a little bit differently, gives us a different perspective. And this is true of one of the most famous moments in the gospel when Simon Peter denies Christ. And so we're going to look at Simon Peter today, um, but we're going to look at him through the lens of John's um, perspective. Now, a couple things that I want you to keep in mind. Um, John is probably, again, we can't be definitive about this, but given the relationships in the, in the gospel text, John is probably Simon Peter's cousin. Um, even if he's not his cousin, uh, they, they live in the same very small fishing village, so they know each other um, as well as most family members would. So John is writing about something that he is very emotionally and personally invested in. But the second thing I want you to know is that Simon Peter has been dead at this point when John writes his gospel probably for about 30 years. And so John is now an old man writing about a, a, a friend, a relative, a, a fellow follower of Christ. And he's trying to tell the story in such a way that it has an impact on the audience he's writing for. And through our study of John, I have constantly reminded uh, the congregation that John writes his gospel to the second and third generation of believers. Those who didn't live when Jesus was alive. They're the children and the grandchildren of followers. They're, they're people that have come to faith um, from whatever walk of, ro- walk of life um, after, long after most of the apostles are off the scene. And so John not only reports historically accurate information, but he also reports it in such a way that resonates with their lives and the situations that are going on in their lives. And so it's always good for us to kind of pause and think about who God used to write this, the, the, the human author, 
but also who he was writing to. Because that informs how we, who now receive the text so many years later, um, how we receive it. And so here we're going to pick up in, um, in uh, John chapter 18, we're going to pick up in verse 10. Jesus has just been uh, betrayed to uh, the, the soldiers who have come to the Garden of Gethsemane. And in verse 10, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear, and the servant's name was Malchus. And Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, who, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Now, this already calls back a bunch of things that have happened in the book of John. In verse 15, then Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple, And usually whenever John talks about an unnamed disciple, he's talking about himself. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. Now this is a side note, but Peter has this thing. He keeps winding up. It happens again in the book of Acts, and I have no idea whether the uh, apostles just thought this was funny about Peter. He seems to constantly wind up at doors that servant girls have to open for him. Um, I don't know why, but it happens again in Acts. He winds up at a door. A girl comes to the door, says, who are you? He has to, they has to tell her who she is. I don't know if it's just the way that Simon Peter just stands outside of doors, or he just kind of lurks outside. He's just like standing there. You know, I don't know what's going on. But anyway, um, so Peter stands outside. The servant girl at the door said to Peter in verse 17, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now, let's just pause for a second. Do you realize how stupid this is? So one of Jesus' disciples who's known to the high priest goes in, then says to this girl, that guy's with me, go open the door and let him in. The girl goes to the door, says, are you one of the people that follow Jesus? He goes, nope. Now, I mean, talk about getting caught in a silly, just a, a pointless deception. Right, because she already knows that he's um, that he's with John. He, she already knows he's there. So he says, "I am not." Verse eighteen. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. And Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. And then John does something that none of the other gospels do. The other three Gospels, and you can, you can go back and you can, you can read their accounts um, in Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22. When they tell the story of Simon Peter's denials, Simon Peter denies Jesus three times. And in all the other three Gospels, it's just presented as one block. Simon Peter, he's standing there. Are you one of his disciples? No. Are you one of his disciples? No. Are you one of his disciples? No, no, no. Jesus, uh, Simon Peter is very direct. But with John, John breaks it up. He has this first denial at the door. So he gives us this detail about this servant girl. 
And then in verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I, heard me, what, what I said to them. They know what I said. Now, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus makes this statement in the garden before he's arrested. And some critics will say, ah, see, uh, the gospel writers are moving things around and there's an inconsistency. Yes, God forbid someone say the same thing twice. That that argument has never made any sense to me. Like, well, Matthew says he did it here and John says he did it there. How many times have you had to repeat yourself in a situation like this? If you get pulled off over by a police officer, how many times do you you ask the question, uh, what... What, why, why are you pulling me over, officer? Or, if you're aware, right? Do you know why I pulled you over? Yes. Why did I pull you over? <laughs> Do you want the list? <laughs> um, you know, uh, but, but so Jesus, Jesus is responding to the high priest. He's giving the high priest the same answers he had given to those who had come to arrest him. He says to them, I was in public. I was teaching in the synagogue. I was in the temple where all the Jews came together. Why don't you ask those who have heard me what I said to them? Now, if you, you don't catch it because we're flying through this, Who is the person right now in the narrative who has heard Jesus say the most things? Simon Peter. So Jesus says, why don't you ask those who were with me what I said? Boy, Simon Peter's about to look silly. Why do you ask me? Verse 22, when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? And Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. All right. Now, verse 40, uh, verse 25. Now, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So he's picking up um, from verse, uh, verse 18. John is picking up the narrative, the same idea. Simon Peter is still standing there and warming himself. Now, what was Simon Peter willing to do just a few verses before when the, when the troops came to get Jesus? He goes flailing with a sword, right? How dare you come to arrest Jesus? I'm going to... And he's a terrible shot. We've talked about this before. If you're swinging a sword, why on earth, how on earth, with a double-bladed sword, did you manage, in swinging to hurt somebody, get his ear? It just doesn't make any sense what he does. He, he, he's a fisherman. He doesn't... He probably is like... Mwah. Um But Simon Peter has no idea what he's doing. He swings a sword. Jesus tells him to put up the sword. Now Simon Peter is in a position to defend Jesus, both both physically and he can stand up and bear witness to what Jesus has said. And instead, what is he doing? He's just standing there warming himself by the fire. So before, when it would have been inappropriate to try to defend Jesus, he does it. But now he's in a position that he could defend Jesus. And he doesn't. In verse 25, Simon Peter standing and warming himself. 
So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. Now, again, I want you to realize what's going on. Notice it says, you also are not one of his disciples. What does that mean? It means that when they asked John if he was one of his disciples, John said yes. You also are not one of his disciples? I mean, John is known to the high priest, probably because he's the guy that delivers the fish to the high priest's house, because he's a fisherman, he's the youngest guy, probably was the one that got sent on the trips down to Jerusalem. That's how well he's known. John is a very, everybody seems to like John. Nobody ever has a complaint about John. He seems to be a pretty good guy. He seems to be able to move in and out. They know who he is. They know who he lives with. They know what he does. So they look at Simon Peter, who, remember, John got into this building... Are you not also one of his disciples? Nope. I am not. Verse 26. And then one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? I got a pretty good glimpse of the guy that lobbed off my buddy's ear. And I'm pretty sure it was you. Peter again denied and at once a rooster crowed a call back peter had said he would never deny jesus in chapter 14 and jesus said you're gonna or 13 and jesus said you'll deny me before the rooster crows now the reason the rooster crows that's the beginning of the day all right it's dawn um, we have a neighbor who has roosters we know when the day starts and um and, but this is and this is a callback now What's interesting about this, this, the way that John presents this, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they make a big deal about this moment when Peter realizes he's done it three times and the rooster crows. In Luke, there's actually a moment, this happens, and Peter denies Jesus, and then Jesus turns and looks at Peter. And, and the Greek word is, uh, and blepo, he saw through you. He saw through him. Jesus turned and looked at him and knew Peter. In all, he knew exactly what had happened. And Peter goes out and he's weeping and um, the scriptures describe him in this great distress. John doesn't include that. John doesn't include that. All he says is that Simon Peter denied him and at once a rooster crowed. Now, part of the reason he probably doesn't include that detail is because his audience has already, already knows this story. They're already very familiar with it. Simon Peter is not one to ever avoid identifying his failures. Uh, in fact, the Gospel of Mark is probably Peter's Gospel, and if you read the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark is brutally honest about Peter. That he, Peter is not afraid. He's not afraid to admit his failures, especially as an old man. Read First and Second Peter. He is not afraid to admit who he is. And so they're probably familiar with that, and, and John doesn't want them to focus on that. He doesn't want to focus on, on that, 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 that heartbreaking moment. Because John knows that Peter is ultimately going to be restored in chapter 21. But I think it's fascinating the way that, Jesus, or the way that John presents G, uh, Simon Peter's uh, denial and interweaves it both with his own story. He's the, John's Gospel is the only one that says there's another disciple there. And interweaves it with Jesus in his trial. 
Again, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they just tell the story of Jesus's, or, uh, Simon Peter's denial just in a block, just a few verses. Question, denial, question, denial, question, denial. Peter goes out and cries. All right, it's very straightforward. Why does John, writing now at the end of the first century to the second and third generation of believers, pause in the middle of Simon Peter's denial to present us with Jesus confirming that he is who he says he is. Now, can you be absolutely definitive on anything like this? Without a clear statement of scripture, you have to allow that there's some latitude. But I think there's a couple of things going on here. By the time John is writing, Christians have been separated from the protection they experienced as being a Jewish sect. In the Roman world, the Jews, up until AD 70, were protected um, by what was called the Lex Judaica. This was a special law passed by Julius Caesar in, in the 40s BC, um, and it protected them. They were not required to pay taxes to local pagan temples. Um, they were allowed to practice their own religion. Believe it or not, they were not to be punished for being circumcised. That sounds like a weird thing, but that was actually part of Roman law. Um, they, they, they were able to operate on their own terms. And there were a, a large number of, of Jews throughout the Roman Empire that were very, very involved in a lot of things that were going on, and they had this special protection. But the Jews, during the, the early first century, when Christianity started to emerge, the Jews wanted to differentiate this group. They called them the Nazarenes or the Nazarites or the Way. They wanted them to be separated from Judaism because this group was accepting the Messiah. They were saying they had a Messiah. Now that in and of itself wasn't so bad. I mean, there was a Messiah every other day in the first century. It was, it was pretty common. We have a list of at least six or seven of them in the New Testament alone. These supposed, we're going to come and rescue the Jews. The issue was, not only did they accept Jesus as the Messiah, but these Christians, these followers of the way, these Nazarites, they also allowed Gentiles to accept their Messiah. I mean, it was one thing for Jews to have their own personal Messiah. It was another thing altogether to allow Gentiles to be a part of the covenant of God. That was too much. And so the Jews, and we see it in the book of Acts, they are persecuting the Christians, they are running them out of town, they are stoning Paul, um, they're doing all kinds of things that are going on. Well, it only intensified over the course of the first century. And then from uh, AD 65 until AD 73, 74, there's what's called the First Jewish-Roman War. And this is a war that breaks out over the corruption of the Jewish uh, governor. I'm not going to get into all, all the stuff he was doing. Um, but the Jews uh, start rise up in rebellion and a group of uh, extremists called the, um, called the, the Long Blades, um, they, they take over a Roman fortress and they kill all the Roman soldiers. And, and it, it erupts into a massive war that somewhere around 100,000 people die in combat. And as many as a million people may have died altogether. It, it's a big war. Because the Jews are well-trained soldiers. They're, they're not just shepherds living on the backside of the world. And they're also wealthy. The Jew, Ju, Judea was a very wealthy part of the world. 
And they're fighting the Romans. They, they actually, the Romans have to send legion after legion after legion um, into this area. And they finally get a, a commander named Tiberius Julius Alexander, who's actually a Jew. He understands how things are going. They have some traitors like Flavius Josephus who come in and join them, and they manage to defeat the Jews. Well, once that happens, the, the Lex Judaica is dropped. The Jews are no longer a protected class. So the Jews then, in throughout the empire, not only are they no longer protected, but any vestigial protection that might have existed for the Christians is gone. And in the region of Asia Minor, what is today Turkey, which is where the city of Ephesus and Smyrna um, and major cities of, of the Roman Empire were, in that region, the governors began to very actively persecute the Christians. And the question on whether you were a Christian was very simple. Are you a follower of Jesus? That was the simple question. And for so many, the struggle was, do I stand up and join my testimony with Christ? like Peter is being challenged, or do I stumble? Do I fall? Do I deny? And if I deny, what happens to me? Because there was a group of Christians who believed that if you dared to deny Jesus in front of the Roman, sold, in front of the Roman magistrates, you were condemned to hell. If you denied, that was it. It was over. There was no redemption for you. You, you were done. Sounds a lot like the Jews who were rejecting the Christians, doesn't it? It was over for you. And John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the loving bishop of the church of Ephesus, the, the one who leaned on the breast of Christ, the one who mourned over Judas Iscariot, if you were here last week, John tells the story of one of the greatest heroes of the church. Simon Peter, Shimon Kephah, the rock, the, the, the one who knew Jesus best, the, the, probably the bishop of Rome for, for, most of, uh, for most of about 20 or 30 years. The great leader, he says, don't you forget, even Simon stumbled. Even Simon, in a situation where there was absolutely no reason for him to think anyone was going to believe him. Remember that. John's already there. He, they know John's a disciple. John let Simon Peter into the courtroom. We find out from, from uh, Mark, I believe it is, that Simon Peter has a horrible accent. All right? He's so obvious. It's so obvious. This is like a guy from Georgia trying to pass himself off as being from Nova Scotia. He, he just, there's no way that he's not a Galilean. There's no way that he isn't a follower of Jesus. He was with Jesus. There's a guy, he hacked a guy's ear off and his relative is there. And yet Simon Peter just cannot bring himself to say he's a disciple of Jesus. And then we contrast this. And this is where I think John's 
brilliance comes in. His, his love, and I don't mean brilliance as an in intellectual brilliance. I think the way that he illuminates and glorifies Christ. He interjects into that denial Jesus saying, you just talk to the ones who know me. He interjects into that Jesus being steadfast and true. Jesus trusting those that he's been teaching to eventually get it right. John interjects that in, in the midst of the story, so that even when we look at Simon Peter's moment of weakness, we see Christ's steadfastness. And when Simon Peter stumbles, Jesus will eventually be there to pick him up. Even when Simon Peter can't admit to himself what is already obvious to everyone else around him, even when Simon Peter must have realized that he was actually going back on his promises to Jesus, that he would never abandon him, that he would stay with him through thick and thin, that Jesus was the one who had the words of truth, there was no one else they could go to. Even though Simon Peter stumbles in, the, in honoring every single commitment he's made to Jesus, Jesus doesn't change. So even when Simon Peter falls, Jesus stays. Jesus is still there. Jesus, now, I'm going to leave you with a little bit. This happens at dawn. The rooster crows. You know the next time Jesus appears to Simon Peter? is going to be at dawn. The night, the moments of Simon Peter's denial, I mean the guilt that Simon Peter must have lived in, doesn't matter to Jesus. Because Simon Peter is his. Simon Peter, for all of his brokenness, he's Jesus's. And what must it have been like for those first century Christians who maybe stumbled and failed? Maybe they were raised in the church, they knew all the right words, but then when they were challenged by the powers and authorities of the world, they fell. They stumbled. They swayed. They made mistakes. And they looked at them themselves and they said, well, how, you know, how, can, how can this work? I, 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 I don't know... I, I, I failed, I fell down, I, I, I made the mistake. And John says, the one who loved me is the one who loved Simon Peter. The one who went to the cross is the one who will meet Simon Peter on the shores of the Sea of Galilee and ask him to feed his sheep. You stumble, you fall, you make mistakes, you get confronted by the testimony of this world that is so powerful and influential, the agendas of those who would draw you to anything other than Christ, and you stumble and you fall and you say, oh man, now I've blown it, now I've wrecked it, now I've destroyed my relationship with God, I don't know how to get this back, I don't know what to do, how do I live with myself in this problem? And Jesus never stops. He just keeps going. He's there, no matter how much we fail. We as Christians 
need to draw the strength for our confession of Christ from his confession of who he is. You say, I don't know how to stand up to the opposition. I, listen, I didn't go to public school. I, went to a, I, went, I was homeschooled um, until my parents decided to imprison me in a Christian school. Basically, I don't know why else they would do that to me. That particular Christian school, I'm not saying Christian school in general, that was just awful. Um, and I've told you stories about the Christian school I was in. Um, anyways, uh, my, I was homeschooled. I didn't deal with it. But then my daughter went to public school. Ariel went to public school in seventh grade because her mom and I are not smart enough to teach her. She's just smarter than both of us and definitely more sarcastic. And... Um, she went to public school and she was dealing with things I had never dealt with. I had never confronted. I had never faced down the agendas that she was dealing with. The, the situation she was faced with. Her, her, her friends and the things that they were involved in. It, it was so alien to me. I didn't know what to do with that. And every day we, we prayed over our daughter when she was at school. We, we prayed that she would hear the voice of God above the voices of, of all those other voices. Because we didn't know. We, we, couldn't, we couldn't say for sure you know, that she wasn't going to come home one day and, and align herself with something. That wasn't because we, we all know how powerful the voice of the world is. But we just had to trust that she had put her faith in Jesus and no matter how many doubts she had, no matter how fears she had, even no matter how many denials she had, he stayed true. Now I know this sounds weird, but the moment that my daughter told me the only school she was interested in was a Christian school, I was blown away. I was absolutely, but we did not push her. I know it's the same school I did my seminary stuff in. I did not push her other than to say, hey, they have a program in what you're looking at. Maybe look at them. We didn't want her to move 700 miles away. When she came to us and she said, this is the school, I think, I think this, is, this is the one. She never looked at another school. She never, she never even considered. Her counselors were telling her you should have second and third options. She was accepted as a junior. She was like, why do I need a second option? I'm already accepted. She went to, and, and every day that she's at that school, it is extraordinary to her to live in a world, the, the university she goes at, to live in a world where she can pray in public. To live in a world where they have conversations about the Bible without having to worry about whether the teachers are going to tell them not to talk about religion. Um, to live in a world where, I mean, my daughter was told at one point that to get into her career, she would have to be willing to, to date a transgendered person. If you're not say, willing to say that you'd be willing to date a transgendered person, they're not going to hire you. I, I'm not kidding. And she came to me in tears. I picked her up from school that day. She says, is this true? I said, if that's true, you don't need that job. God will provide for you. God will take care of you. And if your friends are putting that kind of pressure on you, find better friends. And every day watching God do things in my daughter's life now as a young adult. And those of you that have kids that have grown up and are following Christ, you know what I'm talking about. You sit there and go, man. But it's not because of us. It's because Jesus, his testimony never wavers. 
And no matter how much we deny, and no matter how much we struggle, and no matter how much we stumble, when we turn back to him, he is always there. Do you really trust him? We talk about trusting Jesus, but do you really trust him? You're going through something difficult. You're going through something hard. You're in a situation that's unhealthy, maybe even toxic and dangerous. And you're sitting there going, I don't know what to do. Where is Jesus? Do you trust him? We, we say we trust Jesus um, for our eternal security, that if we put our faith and trust, trust in him, when we die, we will be in his presence forever. We will be given eternal life. We say we trust him in that area, but do we trust him every day here on earth in the same way? You say, no, sometimes I stumble, sometimes I fall, sometimes I deny, sometimes I, I just struggle. You're okay. You're in good company. And Jesus is always there. He said to his disciples in Matthew 28, he said, look, I am with you until the end of the world. You're going to feel like everything in the world is going to trying to squeeze your faith out. You are going to be persecuted by the powers of, of the world, the Roman world, sin, lust, destruction, damage, greed, everything you could possibly Those things are going to weigh down on you and you're going to feel alone, but you need to know I am always here. And maybe you as a Christian, you're struggling with that. You're struggling with guilt over your failures, your denials, your battles. Maybe you know somebody that's going through that and you're saying, what do I say to them? Jesus is always there. It sounds so cliche, doesn't it? It sounds so like, oh, there's got to be more to it. The creator of the universe went to the cross to save a bunch of sinners expecting nothing from us but that we look to him. He is always there. Heavenly Father, we thank you not just for what we get from you but who Jesus is. I know in my own life there are so many times when I look around and I feel alone, abandoned, broken. I look at things in my life that should have gone another way and as a result don't bring glory to you and have to own my own guilt and blame. And yet you are always there. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And your glory is our soul purpose. Help us to live for your praise. Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen.